All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, just want to, again, just thank Luigi and everyone who's had anything to do with putting this conference together. It's really a great joy just to be in and amongst my people, you know? Like, <laughs> sometimes as an artist, you just, you kind of feel maybe a little bit isolated from the community of other artists, you know? And um, it's just a joy to be with you. First of all, how many of you have read uh, JP2's letter to the artist, to us? Familiar with it? Okay, good. So we can go a little bit deeper, I, I hope, today in these uh, modest and brief, I guess, reflections, because as usual with John Paul II, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minefield. You could go into any avenue of his thought and go way profoundly deep, and so we're going to kind of just highlight a few things which I think are maybe the most vital from the document. And also from the start, I just want to identify a few terms just as we begin, because it just helps with, uh, with understanding. Is when, I, when I speak about beauty, I'm going to be speaking primarily about um, artistic beauty, like the, the, the beauty of created artwork, okay? Unless I, other, unless I say otherwise. And second of all, John Paul II's letter addresses all artists worldwide of any stripe, but I think, as he says multiple times to the document, he's especially directing his attention towards Christian artists. So not necessarily like what I do, which is, you know, more uh, representational, sacred art, um, but, uh, but those who are um, attempting to achieve their art from the heart of their, their Christian faith, you know. That makes sense? All right, good. So to begin, I want this, this time that we have together to be a meditation, a chance for us to kind of sit with John Paul II and allow his words to communicate Christ's words to us today. So maybe in that spirit, we'll just begin with a very short prayer directed to Jesus who is here amongst us in the tabernacle. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we adore you profoundly. We thank you from the depths of our, of our artistic hearts for the gift that you've given to us. Renew today our sight, our vision. Renew in us today a purpose. Set our feet upon the path of those great artists that have changed the world. We thank you and we adore you. In Christ's name we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I also ask the intercession of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, St. John Paul II, St. Joseph, St. Luke, patron of artists, Blessed Fra Angelico, and all artists who are with us in spirit. Okay, so what is the nature of beauty? The kind of beauty that art brings. The Council Fathers at the end of the Second Vatican Council had a word directed to art, to the artists. They said this, This world in which we live, in which we live, needs beauty in order to not sink into despair. 
This world needs beauty in order to not sink into despair. Beauty is then, especially artistic beauty, is then something of an antidote to depression, <laughs> to despair, to the darkness that uh, many of us and many of our um, family and friends find in their lives. They go on. Beauty like truth brings joy to the human heart, and this is a precious fruit, which resists the erosion of time, which unites generations and enables them to be one in admiration. Beauty, artistic beauty, is here a unifying principle, a principle of communion, you could say, a principle of healing, a principle of healing broken bonds and relationship. John Paul II has five main uh, points about what he considers art to be in the document. He, proposed, he says that art, one, probes the nature of man, two, illuminates man's problems and experiences, three, discovers man's place in the cosmos, Portray, four, portrays man's miseries and joys, and five, gives him a view of the future, of destiny, of hope. Again, art, especially artistic beauty needed in the world, is what will bring about a renewal, especially in the thought of John Paul II. But what if, as we look around our culture, we discover that the sense of authentic beauty is being lost or has been lost or is at least muted or dulled so that our brothers and sisters do not understand or cannot see it? I want to take just, this is the longest quote of the entire talk, <laughs> right up front just to get it out of the way, but it's Hans Urs von Balthasar, one of the you know, favorite theologians of John Paul II. He's speaking about beauty and what occurs in a culture if beauty itself is lost, especially artistic beauty. He says this, Beauty is the disinterested one, without which the ancient world refused to understand itself. Beauty, a word which both imperceptibly and yet unmistakably has bid farewell to our new world, a world of interests, leaving to its own avarice and sadness. No longer loved or fostered by religion, beauty is lifted from its face, religion's face, as a mask, and its absence exposes features on that face which threaten to become incomprehensible to man. We no longer dare to believe in beauty, and we make of it a mere appearance, something pretty, in order to more easily dispose of it. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness. And beauty will not allow herself to be separated from her two sisters, uh, truth and goodness, without taking them both along with herself in an act of mysterious vengeance. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of some bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and will soon no longer be able to love.
<laughs> the world needs beauty in order to not sink into despair. Our present state is no surprise, I think, if we pay any attention at all to social media, which maybe we shouldn't, <laughs> um, seems to be one of fracture, even within the church. You know, sex of people who believe that they've got the idea of what is the most Catholic versus this person uh, infighting amongst Catholics lots of calumny towards our, our priests and our bishops. It's as if in our world we find that, it's, that we haven't listened directly to the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, let there be no division among you. But there is. So what's the antidote? I think John Paul II in this letter has the antidote, especially for us who are gathered here. Artists, know who you are. Artists, know who you are. The letter, I think, has two main catechesis. A catechesis on artistic identity and also on artistic sight and seeing. An identity, it's like we, you know, it's like we make our prayer and our artistic journey and artistic work one with the words of St. Francis, you know, where he said, Lord, who am I and who are you? Who am I and who are you? Profound question of being. JP2, as Luigi said, writing at the end of the, the last millennium, looking into the threshold of this new millennium, I think was perceiving something very profound for the world, for us. A new way of seeing. You know, as a playwright and a poet and a lover of nature that he was, he perceived an unseen world of objects and themes, of subjects, of divinity. And that's what we're called to, that kind of sight. I've often taught art lessons, especially to young people, and they get a little bit uh, confused, disturbed, and frustrated at first because my main focus is for them to learn how to see. Before I teach them the, the mechanical, you know, uh, and, and the, the skill sets of drawing and painting, I first want them to learn how to see. You know, no, don't draw how you think the object looks, but what the object really is. Show me what you see when you look at the leaf on that flower. What you really see, its ridges and folds, the way the light falls on it. Show me that. And it can be frustrating because our sight is often dimmed. It's weighed down in our own uh, presuppositions about ourself. It can also be uh, weighed down in sin. But here's the thing. 
God sees you first. God sees us first. His sight precedes our sight. His sight precedes our sight in act and also in kind. He sees us. Often I, um, I'm a musician as well, and I, I go around to parishes and I lead holy hours. And often what I begin with every single time is I, br- I, I, I ask people with uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola to begin to pray the way St. Ignatius prayed. St. Ignatius would always begin his prayer asking the Lord for the grace to know how he looks upon him now. Lord, how do, what is... Let me feel, know, and perceive how your gaze is upon me. Know who you are in the sight of God. John Paul II says, the more conscious that artists are of the, of the gift that they've been given, the more they are led to see themselves and the whole creation with eyes able to contemplate and give thanks and raise to God a hymn of praise. This is the only way for artists to come to a full understanding of themselves, their vocation and their mission. You see, our being able to know with a deep knowledge how the Lord sees us and what his identity, his stamp is upon us precedes our going to the canvas or our our writing, our, our poem, our sitting at the piano. It's the only way of, that our art will become a true contemplation. So again, as we are here before a Lord who sees us now, again, we just ask Jesus in this moment, please, Lord, give us a newness of sight. Where our identity has been fractured, renew us. Help us to know how your gaze falls upon us now. So, is everyone here a working artist? Like, at some level, hobby level, professional level? Okay, great, awesome. Have you ever experienced the pain of not being able to create, for whatever reason? Yeah, me too. How about the pain of creating? (laughs) Yeah, me too. Um, There's something speaking in that to us. John Paul II really begins the letter in fullness, the way he begins almost everything with theological anthropology. He goes right back to the beginning. He wants us to have a full vision of the, the history of man. The history of our of ourself. He wants us to see, obviously, that there's an infinite gap or an abyss between the Creator and His creation in terms of being. And he draws a really beautiful distinction at the beginning, the very beginning. The distinction between a creator and a craftsman. Have you ever thought of this? The creator as someone who is a creator bestows being, you know, ex nihilo, you know, essentially this is, 
an attribute only reserved for God. But a craftsman is someone who uses existing being, things, and gives them form and meaning. When God created man, he created him from the earth and gave him a commandment, right? To be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. We read in Genesis, Then God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and all the animals that crawl on the earth. But then God does something on top of the task that he gives us. He gives man gifts so that he might succeed in his craft. It's kind of, you can almost say it's like a litany of I give from the Lord. See, I give you, as he he goes on, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the earth and every tree and every seed-bearing fruit to be your food. See, I give you the wild animals of the earth to every bird of the air. I give the green plants for food. And so it was. God saw that what he made, all that he made, and it was very good. It goes on, obviously. But God is the gift giver. He's the one that gives before our need. So God gave man this this task of craftsmanship, John Paul II says. He gave man human inventiveness sort of within the palette of being, so to speak. Then he goes on to say something rather shocking, which I think is really important for us to meditate on. Through his artistic creativity, man appears more than ever in the image of God. Just for the sake of highlighting that, I'll say it again. Through his artistic creativity, man appears more than ever in the image of God. And he accomplishes this task above all in shaping the wondrous material of his own humanity and then exercising creative dominion over the universe which surrounds him. With loving regard, the divine artist, God, passes on to the human artist, us, a spark of his own surpassing wisdom, calling him to share in his creative power. Now, to say that through his artistic creativity, man more than ever is in the image of God, is more than ever imago Dei, in other words, is rather shocking, I think. If you've read uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, one of his central points in, in, in that great work, there are many, but one of his central points is that in man and woman's communion and in their fruitfulness, he says the same thing, that in that communion, they appear more than ever in the image of God. What does that mean? God is absolute creativity. He is creative force, you could say. And God is letting us know that man's creativity, be it the creation of a child, for instance, or the bond, that bond of man and woman, 
and even all the way through artistic creativity, is the way in which man sort of harnesses, taps into the imago Dei that he is, the imaging of God. It's really profound, guys. <laughs> it's something to sit with for maybe the rest of our life. See, the, art, the artist crafts his own life, you know, that's true of almost of everyone. He crafts his inner life, you know, that's true of, of everyone. But what's different, I think, about artistic crafting and creativity in this way with John Paul II is that he's trying to say that the artist brings into being, so to speak, that which did not previously exist. He makes visible what is invisible. God makes visible God's action in the world. And so we become imago Dei in our own being in that work, but also an imaging of God to others, a co-creator with the Lord. God calls us to create because God is all creativity. That's why I think that we're in pain when we're not creating. Because we're meant for it, we're made for it, we're made by it. Do we perceive this? Lord Jesus, give us the sight to know and the identity to understand that you are calling us to this. That our pain in creation and our pain in not creating is a sign to us of what you've called us to. What he's called us to. The reason I, re I constantly go back to this document, as probably many of you have, is that it's like a mission statement. It's sort of the nucleus of my vocation, you know, as an artist. I have the, you could say, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, my big V vocation is my marriage and my five beautiful little children. Um, but my little V is my, my, art, my, my vocation as an artist. John Paul II proposes two, two ways of looking at our vocation. Service and beauty. Service and beauty. I'm going to start with service because I think that's one thing that artists often stumble over. Have you thought about it as your art as a service? A service to the common good. I went to art school, unfortunately. <laughs> I went to four years of, of fine art school in Sarasota, Florida, Ringling School of Art and Design. It was one of the premier schools, I think it still is, for illustration. At the time, I wanted to be an animator. It's a thoroughly modern school, and I mean that in the, in the, in the philosophical sense. It's a thoroughly modern school, and what that meant practically is that we were not ever taught how to paint or draw. It was, here's the material, discover for yourself how this is going to work for you. Find your voice, right? 
And there's something to that, you know, I can't totally dismiss it. But man, I went there to learn how to paint, <laughs> you know. I went there to learn how to draw and I paid a lot of money for that, you know. But the one thing that was never imparted to us was that our art was for the world, was for the common good. Often it was express yourself, you know. Often it was show the world who you are. And all that, there is truth in that. That's not to be totally dismissed. But you see, there's a missing part. John Paul II calls us, this is radical, to obedience in service. He says we need to cultivate a spirituality of artistic service. I'm going to read you this little quote, and it it smacks hard, so I'm just going to let you hear it. <laughs> to be an artist is to respond to the demands of art and faithfully to accept art's specific dictates. This is what makes the artist capable of producing objects. But it says nothing as of yet of his moral character. Here we are speaking not of molding oneself, so he's going to talk about that later, or of forming one's own personality. He's going to talk about that later but simply of actualizing one's productive capacities, giving aesthetic form to ideas conceived in the mind. Basically, get in the studio. Get it done. Work and work hard. If God's calling you to it, it has to become something more than a hobby or something that's just something nice to do when you feel like you have spare time. It's something of a responsibility in the gift. The reason is, we are called to be, to be for others. John Paul II famously was called a man for others as a title somebody gave him in a book. That means totally given. That occurs, I mean, we could talk about how that occurs in marriage or religious life or the priesthood, obviously. You know, there's so many obvious things you can point to. But sometimes as artists, we kind of just kind of like, well, I just don't feel inspired today. So I'm not going to get in there and do it. I can tell you, as a working artist, the only way that I survive, <laughs> not only materially, but also spiritually, is like what John Paul II is saying here, to have an obedience and cultivate a spirituality of artistic Service, which means I don't feel like it today, but I'm going to sit at the easel and I'm going to get it done. Not, it's not about me. It's for those who are going to see this and come to know the Lord. There's a couple of books that, that help me along the way. They're not, they're not necessarily spiritual books or Christian books, but they're very helpful. One was, is called Real Artists Don't Starve which I think is a great one. Um, it's sort of an antidote to what my parents always thought was going to happen to me. <laughs> um, and the other one is called Make Art, Make Money. All right? I know that might seem strange to say here in the church, but we need to be able to provide for our families. And it's, it's uh, based on the work of Jim Henson, who is one of my favorite people who's ever lived. <laughs> uh, Jim Henson, the puppeteer, the Muppets, you know? It's based on his work ethic. 
There's something in that that we need to hear. And both of those two artists who wrote those books had tremendous work ethics because they realized that their work was for others. Their work is for others. It is possible to be a professional, working, Catholic artist and to provide for your family. It is possible. I'm doing it solely for my family. With five kids and a farm, it's possible. This, we live in the best and most fruitful time to be an artist, especially in the church. We can find our people that are at great distances. I have people who follow my work all over the world. That's never been done in the history of art. It's possible. If God is calling you, be obedient, John Paul II says. This doesn't mean we sell our soul or we have to do every single thing that comes down our comes our way. It doesn't mean that we lose something of ourselves. You know? Just because we work like this and work for others doesn't mean that we're dissolved somehow in our work. In producing a work, John Paul II says, artists express themselves to the point where their work becomes a unique disclosure of their own being, of what they are, of how they are. And they are endless, and there are endless examples of this in human history. In shaping a masterpiece, the artist not only summons his work into being, for instance, the painting I did of Our Lady, but also in some way reveals his own personality. For him, art offers both a new dimension and an acceptable mode of expression for his spiritual growth. Doing the artwork is where our spiritual growth comes in. Did you ever think of that? Getting it done, doing the work, is where we grow spiritually. Through his works, the artist speaks to others and communicates with them something of his own being. It's true what I learned in art school. I am communicating myself. But it's not all about that. It's about service of the common good for others, for the church, for those who yet do not know Christ. Again, cultivate a spiritual, spirituality of artistic service. Again, we said in our pre previously, art is for healing and renewal and of communion. It's an antidote to concupiscence. Our gifts must bear fruit. Just like the parable of the talents, our gifts must bear fruit. The second part of our vocation is beauty. John Paul II said that in a certain way, beauty is the vocation of the artist. In his being, you know, at a, meta at a metaphysical level even, in his moral act, in the artist creating works of beauty, he's showing the world why the good is to be sought after at all, and why not to just chase after evil, even. His, his work of beauty is to show people the truth of things and the unity in the truth. See, beauty, as you know, if you walk, ever walked into a, a cathedral that blows your you know, socks off, it awakens our body it's not just a spiritual awakening. It just awakens our senses up that are dulled by the world. 
It awakens our senses, even our physical senses, to the realm of God. It causes humanity to wonder before life, before creation, the cosmos, so that man understands that we understand that we stand before a mystery all the time. Artists were so tempted to technical achievement. You know what I mean by that? We're so tempted to technical achievement, not just our technique of creating, but we're tempted to make something uh, novel, I suppose, utterly novel. It's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the breeze of the culture flowing in. Right? It's the breeze of the eclipse of mystery that comes through our modern technology and modern science and the way that we understand what God said to us to subdue the earth, we often think of it as dominion. And we can think of our own artwork in terms of dominion. And we get so focused in on the technique. But our art is to raise up others and ourselves and so we talk about the moral life in John, with John Paul II. If our vocation is to beauty, our vocation is to show the world authentic beauty and to make known the counterfeit so that when they experience the counterfeit, they realize it's counterfeit, that it's fast food beauty. On one hand, authentic beauty, beauty which elevates which calls man to sacrifice, to choose the narrow path, to transcendence, to stand before mystery and wonder at the divine. On the other hand, beauty which dazzles, which causes a will to power, to covet, to possess, to take. You know, you think of Eve, when she reached out to grab the fruit, she saw that the fruit was beautiful and good for eating. And in that moment, she had the will to possess. Michael O'Brien, do you know Michael O'Brien? He's a beautiful writer, yeah, beautiful novelist and painter, lives in Canada, wonderful man. He said that Christian art is always standing between two fires. On one side, the fire is beauty. That beauty, I'm sorry, that beauty is a lie. And that what is ugly is really true. Beauty itself is, is a deception. It's like a mask. It's not the real one fire. On the other side, the other fire is that dazzling beauty that I spoke of. But the, the kind of beauty that causes an inward turn to man, that locks him up inside. And in so doing that makes human beings seem diminished, that it's not possible for man to be great. He says that Christian art is caught between these two fires. See, our fundamental inner 
uh, situation, as John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body, as homework, if you will, <laughs> the appendix of the section in Theology of the Body where John Paul II speaks about uh, the body and, and its representation in art. If you've never read that, it's profound. gets into um, phys uh, physical de de um, depictions of the body and art, but also um, talks about pornography and all kinds of things. It's, very, it's a very wonderful reflection. But John Paul II, in that reflection, says that our fundamental inner situation is the threefold concupiscence. The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Our fundamental inner situation is the war of that. Everybody, us, artists, and everybody. And the interpersonal sphere is in danger of being lost. You know, the, the, when we represent art, when we, sorry, when we represent the human form, for instance, in our art, where it becomes when the person starts to become less of a subject and become more of an object, it's because the person is not being represented as uh, a gift of someone who is to be received as a gift by a loving other, a human body, a personal subject. See, that form, the form of which the human person is made into an object is a form of beauty, so to speak, false beauty, that is masterfully and skillfully achieved in our culture. There are folks that are masters at this. And like we said before, in order to be the antidote, it will take up all of our courage all of our devotion and commitment, and all of our skill and obedience to counteract it. I live near a town called Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and there's a, it's a very small town, it's very cute, but at the end of the town is a big, giant concrete wall, and it's called the Great Wall of Honesdale. It's hilarious. Um, but on the wall, are all these works of art, and every year they pick, uh, I don't know, it's 10 or 12 paintings to display. And I was astonished this year when I saw the work, because I would say 75% of it was uh, psychologically disturbed, <laughs> was the artist sending forth into the world his psychological disturbance. It was super clear. Depression, lust, I mean, complete disintegration on display and just being sort of broadcast like a, like a, just like a sound wave straight into the entire population of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. This battle exists in our church. It's, I'm not going to get into it too much, but we've seen the ugliness of modern architecture that is more concerned with the material than the form. A modern of music, paintings, glass, church appointments. The church has always responded to crisis with art. 
And in the great, in the center of the of the letter, John Paul II has a is, has a great big history, really succinct and beautiful, from the very beginnings until modern day of the effect of Christian art on the world. It's beautiful. I would say just take a, take a another look at that and read it prayerfully. There's a great book called um, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith by Elizabeth Lev. You should really check that out. It's beautiful. Her main pre um, premise of the book is that, the, again, that the church has always responded to crisis with art, and her, her jumping-off point is the Reformation. That during the time of the Reformation, the church was being literally ripped in half. And the way the church responded to being totally ripped in half was to create the most glorious works that Western man has ever seen and known. During the Mannerist era, which is, took place sort of right in the middle of the Reformation, uh, Gabriel uh, Pagliotti, who's a bishop of Bologna, said this, which I think is beautiful, a call for us. Artists are tacit preachers. With the office, the high office, to delight, to teach, and to move. Artists are tacit preachers with the office to delight, teach, and to move. In other words, to translate and transform the message of Christ into colors and shapes, sounds and tastes and smells. To awaken man in his bodiliness and therefore also in his spirit to the truth of Christ. It's a battle. You know, do you, do I, do we perceive ourselves in that battle or not? Again, it's the, the reason, gives you reason to get up in the morning early and get to the easel or to the piano or whatever. Lord Jesus, help us to know how you see us now in this battle. What is your will and your desire, what is your identity for us in this battle? I just want to speak briefly about intuition as well. Artistic intuition, inspiration. John Paul II said that because of the Incarnation, God entered humanity through the main door, meaning the human body, humanity, human nature. It becomes then a rich horizon of inspiration for us, the body of Christ. I think often, and I've said this already briefly, at least in part, in art school, in many art schools, unfortunately, especially in the States, we are asked to liberate our intuition from any bonds whatsoever. That our intuition is something that springs just from ourself. Have you ever thought that? I mean, it's okay, I've thought it myself before, that, that I have to somehow stir my own intuition, that, my, that somehow I'm alone in my intuition. Is it true? 
There's a work by, uh, whoops, there's a work by Jacques Maritain called The Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. I'm still reading it. I'm not totally sure I agree <laughs> with some of his main points. I definitely don't agree with this one part, and I just want to offer it as, uh, as, a, as a way of meditating on this. What matters to us is that there are other painters who really count in the movement of creative research and who keep on being intent on doing a work and being intent on beauty. These painters have been confronted with a growing difficulty inseparable from the advance of modern painting, namely, the fact that in proportion as the creativity of the spirit strives for greater and greater liberation in order for the self to be revealed in the work, as we've already spoken about, nature discloses greater obstacles. So nature steps in our way and says, wait, wait a minute, you're not, you're not going to just be able to just disclose yourself. Or rather demand from poetic intuition a ceaselessly growing power in order for things to be grasped and expressed in the work without hampering or thwarting the simultaneous expression of subjectivity and the freedom of the creative spirit. It's a mouthful, but it's basically what we've already said. What was 20 years ago in, 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 in Sorry. What was 20 years ago an invaluable conquest over naturalism will seem now still tainted with naturalism. So as the modern artist decides, well, I'm going to try to get away from form as much as possible, no matter what he does, he's always going to come back around to saying there's too much form in this. I've got to become more, more formless in order to get to the real. It's false. Any representation, whatever, of natural appearances is seen as an obstacle to the free creativity of the spirit. And it is, in actual fact, as long as, it, as long as it has not yet been purified and transfigured in the pungent night of creative intuition. And here's the main part. The road of creative intuition, however, is exacting and solitary. It is the road to the unknown. It passes through the suffering of the spirit. The road to creative intuition is exacting and solitary. Is that true? Is that true? Again, the wind of the culture comes in to the artistic heart and wants you to believe that you are alone and that you must create out of this almost metaphysical loneliness. John Paul II proposes something completely different. Artistic intuition and creativity is the moment of a spark, he says. Have you ever been working in the studio or at the piano or whatever, whatever your craft is, and you've ever experienced the loss of time when you're working? Have you ever, who's experienced it? Yeah, me too. The loss of time or a flare in a moment, you know, where you see the glimmer of the truth of something. The, or an awareness, like a sudden awareness of the, of the inner beauty of something, something, a subject that you're working on. Ever experienced that? John Paul II calls that a spark, the spark. He says, every genuine inspiration contains some tremor 
of that breath with which the Creator Spirit suffused the work of creation from the very beginning. The Creator Spirit reaches out to human genius and stirs its creative power. The Creative Spirit reaches out and stirs in us the creative power. It happens during the artistic work. It happens prior to our act. God is always the first mover. He touches it with a kind of inner illumination, light, seeing, sight, which brings together the sense of the good and the beautiful, and he awakens the energies of the mind. I've experienced that in, in, in working. I know you have too. A sudden awakening of the energies of the mind and the heart, which enable us to conceive an idea and give it form in some work of art. It is right then to speak of moments of grace because the human being is able to experience in some way the absolute who is utterly beyond us. So, is it true that our inspiration and intuition as artists is solitary? I would say it's as solitary as our final meeting with the Lord on our day of judgment, on our own day of judgment. You know? We stand alone, but we stand with God. Always with God. I think this is the, 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 the point at which maybe we begin to see how it is that even in our intuition and in our works, that God begins to renew us, that we begin to experience communion with the Lord while we work and in the moment of inspiration because He is the one imparting to us the divine breath, the creative spirit. Jesus, help us to begin to see as you see us. Restore our sight. Fill us with your breath of, of the Creator Spirit. Help us to know that we are not alone. Finally, just to, to wrap up these few thoughts. call that we have as artists is to enter the heart of the mystery. To again ask the Lord in prayer, while we work, before we work, after we work, Lord, what do you see? Give me the grace to see with your own eyes. You know, we often don't even know ourselves. I would say that's our perennial problem. We don't know who we are, really, deep, deeply. We're unknown to ourselves, even. And so it's difficult, then, to settle into a mission. 
it's difficult to give ourselves to one mission for the whole course of our life. But I think that's at the point in which Jesus wants to heal you and me. Heal our artist's heart. Lord, who am I and who are you? I'll end just with John Paul II's own call to us at the end of the document. Jesus Christ not only reveals God, but fully reveals man to man, man to himself. In Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself. All believers are called to bear witness to this, but it is up to you, men and women, who have given your lives to art, to declare with all the wealth of your ingenuity that in Christ the world is redeemed, the human person is redeemed, the human body is redeemed, and the whole creation, according to St. Paul, that awaits impatiently the revelation of the children of God, is redeemed. The creation, hear this, all creation awaits the revelation of the children of God through art and in art. <laughs> all creation awaits the revelation of the children of God through art and in art. This is your task. Humanity in every age and even today looks to works of art to shed light upon its path and its destiny. Brothers and sisters, our artwork gives people hope in darkness. It leads people to healing and to renewal. It helps them to know of our common destiny in Christ. It gives them hope. Let us take up, the, take up that cross. Take up the gift in sincerity. And walk with Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, here in the most holy sacrament of the altar, we adore you profoundly. We thank you that in you, you have given us all these good things. That you pour out your spirit to us through your five most holy and sacred wounds. That you bestow on us the gift of service and of beauty. Thank you that you've given us a share in this and that you've called us to bring healing to your people. St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks.